So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is an amazing passage. It's an incredibly powerful passage. And I believe that this passage is so amazing and powerful that it has become familiar to all of us. And I believe that this passage has become so familiar to all of us, we've allowed its power to become diluted. So this morning, I pray that we can dust off the familiarity of 1 Samuel chapter 17 and read it through fresh eyes and experience the the, the life-transforming power that the Holy Spirit intends for it to have in our lives this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And let me tell you a way that this chapter is oftentimes taught and how we are not going to teach it this morning. Oftentimes this chapter is taught like a motivational speech in a, in a football locker room where everybody just gets really psyched up and they get motivated and they get fired up to go out and take down the Goliaths, the giants in their life. And this giant's name is Goliath. Your giant's name will be other things. And, and if you can just, you know, call out that giant and maybe talk some trash to that giant, then you'll be bigger and stronger and badder than the giant, and you'll be able to take that giant down. And that sort of teaching of this particular chapter leaves all of our lives unaffected and unimpacted by this chapter. No, no. This chapter is not for us to get psyched up to be bigger and badder than our giant. This chapter is for us to get our eyes off of not only our giant, but onto ourselves and, and, and off of ourselves. This chapter is designed for us to get our eyes off of our giant and off of ourselves and onto the only one who can truly move the mountains in our life, and that is Jesus Christ. So in this chapter, we're going to see two trees. We will observe two trees. And each of these trees have very different fruit. One tree is named Saul, the first king of Israel. And he had a very specific fruit flowing out of his life. The other tree is David. He's just a shepherd boy. He's just a kid at this time. And he has a very unique and distinct fruit coming out of his life. Saul's fruit that flows out of his life is fearful, it's angry, it's bitter, it's resentful, it's jealous, it's timid, it's insecure, it's cowardly. David's fruit is bold and authoritative and passionate and God-honoring. And each of their fruit is a result of a root in their heart. And so what we're going to do is look at the fruit and back calibrate to the root. Because so often we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, think different, behave differently. And by the end of the day, we failed once again, or we still walked through yet another day or worse, another season of our life with the same fearful, timid, passionless fruit. It's because our focus is on just that, the fruit, rather than the root. Because until the root changes, the fruit will remain unaffected. You can stand in front of an apple tree all day long and say, bear oranges, and that apple tree will never bear oranges because the roots are from apple seeds. And you can stand in front of a cherry tree all day long and say, bear apples, and that cherry tree will never bear apples because of the root. 
And you can look at your life all day long and say, think differently, be stronger, be bolder, be more righteous, and that fruit will never change because the issue is the root. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is about roots, and the Holy Spirit gives us two contrasting trees, King Saul and a shepherd boy who will become king named David. So, 1 Samuel chapter 17, open your Bible with me, and we'll begin reading. Let me pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that all of us would be transformed by your Holy Spirit to bear fruit consistent with a brand new root in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing chapter this is. So let's begin. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were, ba- and they were gathered at Sokoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoth and Ezekah and Ephesadamim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Eli and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. This isn't like Mount Everest. It's more like a really big hill. And these hills are there to this day with the valley right in between them. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. So you see what's happening. These two armies are lined up to battle. And they're on two opposing, um, they're on two opposing mountains with a valley in between them. They're, they're motivated. They're probably hitting their swords against their shields. They're doing their pep talks. They're getting ready to go into the valley and begin swinging swords. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistine a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath is a really interesting area of this Judean um, area. It is harsh, it is steep, it is jagged, it is hot. When you walk through Gath, you feel like you're walking through Mars. And you go to uh, Goliath's hometown and you see where he lived up on this steep, jagged hill. And you kind of get why this guy was as tough as he was and why the Philistines were as, as strong as they were. They, they were born and raised in this harsh environment, Gath. And this particular Philistine was unique. Verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Uh, some scholars estimate that he's seven feet tall. Some scholars estimate that he's over nine feet tall. So he's anywhere between incredibly big to freakishly big. And his armor weighs anywhere from 120 to 175 pounds. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. This guy is extremely fierce looking, but not only that, his entire demeanor, his entire disposition is a bad attitude. His entire disposition is bold and cocky, angry, 
intimidating. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Saul, the first king of Israel, one of the trees that we're contrasting this morning. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, they did this in this particular day. If you saw the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, you saw how, how Achilles would, would go up and, and, and stand in front of an, an entire army and say, send out your very best, we'll go against each other. No need to shed all of this blood. No need for all of these people to die on the battlefield this day. You send your best, we send our best. Only one will die, and the one who dies, their army will serve the other, the, the, the other army. That's what's happening here. And everybody is extremely intimidated. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. They're entirely intimidated by Goliath. Not only that, Goliath is defying the God of Israel, and God is not striking Goliath dead, which means that they're doubly intimidated. Our text verse right here in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. The word dismayed is well chosen. It means that they are deprived of courage. Has there ever been a situation in your life that has deprived you of courage? They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And I believe that Saul, who should have been the one to go down and fight Goliath that day because he was king, because he was the most seasoned warrior in all the Israeli army, but not only that, Saul was the tallest man in all of Israel. We read that in 1 Samuel Chapter 9, verse 2, when, or 1 Samuel, um, chapter 16, verse 4, rather, when Saul was anointed king of Israel, we see that, that the Holy Spirit told Samuel, anoint Saul to be king of Israel, and Samuel went to anoint Saul and we read two very interesting descriptors from Scripture about Saul. He was the most handsome in all of Israel. Secondly, he was the tallest in all of Israel. He was a head and a shoulder above everybody else in Israel. So if all of Israel is assembled for some ceremony, you can pick Saul out. Because in a sea of people, Saul is standing head and shoulders above everybody else. Not only is Saul standing head and shoulders above everybody else, but he's the most handsome of them all. That's why he was chosen to be king. And I believe the reason that Israel, the Israeli army, and Saul are in dismay, they've been deprived of courage because of this giant named Goliath who's shouting out intimidating things to them. They lost confidence because their confidence was in the flesh and not God. They had self-confidence. They didn't have God-confidence. I believe that we can gather from Scripture that Saul's confidence was in his stature, and Saul's confidence was in his appearance. And 
he mustered together out of thin air. He was obviously, he, he made some traction with this self-confidence because he was able to gather together an, an, an army in Israel out of thin air. I mean, through his disposition, through his leadership, through the anointing that came upon him, he sounded the battle cry, and he gathered together an army that didn't previously exist. So this self-confidence gained him some traction. And that allowed them to place even greater confidence in Saul. And that allowed Saul to place even greater confidence in his stature and his appearance. But what happens in any of our lives when we face an enemy who dwarfs our power source? That was Saul's predicament. What happens... When we enter into a battle, and it is raging around us, and this battle is unaffected by our greatest strength, what happens when we run right into a mountain that remains unmoved despite our best effort? Like Saul, and like Israel, we become dismayed. What happens when everything that we've relied upon before is insufficient for today's fiery trials and tribulations? Like Saul and like Israel, we become dismayed. So back to our text in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I believe the first reason that they were dismayed is because they had self Confidence, And their self-confidence was insufficient against Goliath. I mean, let's look into Saul's psyche for a moment. He was placing confidence in his stature. He was placing confidence in his appearance. And that gained him some traction. And he has been head and shoulders above everybody else. And now he's facing an enemy who's three head and shoulders above everybody else. And fiercely capable and intimidating. He was in dismay. But I believe that Saul's loss of confidence was only a fruit of a deeper root. It was a, a symptom of a deeper sickness. So let's go deeper into, Paul's dis, into Saul's dismay. Secondly, I believe he was in dismay of heart because, one, he lost confidence because he had self-confidence. That was a symptom of a deeper sickness. Secondly, he lost the Spirit's power in his life, and he knew it. Let's go to 1 Samuel, and let's back up to verse 10. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and let's back up to verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And now let's go to chapter 17 and let's look at verse 4 through 10. I'm sorry, chapter 16 and verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. That's a mysterious verse, isn't it? 
Let's read it again. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I believe Saul lost confidence, but that was a symptom of a deeper root. The deeper root was that he lost the spirit's power. Chapter 16, verse 14. And Jesus said about our lives that if it is cleaned up, if a demon is cast out, the demon will go into arid places, round up seven buddies, come back, and if our house is cleaned up but empty, uh, those demons will overtake that individual and their latter condition will be worse than the first. This is the case with Saul. Saul lost the spirit's power. Saul knew what it was to function in the spirit's power. We read that Saul prophesied, but now the spirit of the Lord has departed from him. And just a quick uh, teaching point at this moment. There is an Old Testament pattern of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that can be contrasted with the New Testament promise of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the activity of the Holy Spirit was very mysterious. The Holy Spirit would come upon somebody like Saul, and the Holy Spirit would come upon a specific person for a specific task, a specific responsibility, and the Holy Spirit could also depart from that person. That was the activity of the Holy Spirit. We see that activity really highlighted throughout the entire book of Judges, when oftentimes the Spirit would come upon somebody and raise them up to be a deliverer for a specific task, a specific chosen person to accomplish a specific task. That was the Old Testament mysterious activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's activity in the New Testament is different, and we know it's different because though the Holy Spirit had a pattern in the Old Testament, there was also a a, a prophesied promise of the Holy, Holy Spirit's activity in the New Testament. We read about that in the book of Joel, when Joel prophesies. It's different. It's going to be different. Rather than the Holy Spirit having an activity that comes upon a certain person for specific seasons, specific times, the Holy Spirit one day will be poured out upon all flesh, men, women, boys, and girls. And the Holy Spirit will come upon somebody, not to perhaps be removed, but the Holy Spirit will come upon somebody and remain upon them. As Jesus said, I'll be in you, and you'll be in me, and I'll be in my Father. And I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can snatch you out of, out of the palm of my hand. And we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that we are sealed and nothing can break the seal of God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So in the Old Testament, there was a pattern, a mysterious pattern of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, there's a promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon all people, never to leave us nor forsake us, and to remain upon us. Now, where is, there is a promise that the Holy Spirit will enter us and remain upon us in the New Testament. We are still commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we can get a little bit more of the Holy Spirit than we had when we were first saved. Because the moment you are saved, you receive all of the Holy Spirit that you ever have, that you'll ever have. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It doesn't mean to get a little more of the Holy Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit will get more of us. Just like the song that we just sang, have all of me, Lord. I want more of you, and if more of you means less of me, then take all of me. Less of me, God, more of you until there's none of me, and it's all you. That's what it is to be Spirit-filled. It's to be entirely surrendered, entirely consecrated to Jesus Christ so that His Spirit can be filled up in our lives. 
And watch the distinction between somebody who has the Holy Spirit upon them and somebody who doesn't. Remember Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And when they lost the presence of God, how did they respond? They hid. They were afraid. And instead of having an intimate relationship, they were accusatory toward one another. That's a distinction of walking in the midst of the presence of God and having the presence of God lifted from you. You go from intimacy with God and courage and peace to fear and cowardice and accusing. Remember Samson, a judge that the Holy Spirit came upon. And in the Old Testament pattern, the Holy Spirit lifted from. And the result of that was Samson was weakened. And because Samson was weakened, Samson was blinded. And because Samson was weakened and blinded, Samson found himself in bondage. But there's positive examples as well. Take Gideon, for example, who without the Holy Spirit was hiding in the threshing room floor, cowardly. And then the Lord stood before him and said, Arise, you you mighty man of valor. And Gideon was certain that the Lord had him mixed up. And he had this severe complex. I'm from the least tribe of Israel, and my family's from the least in our tribe, and my clan is from the least in the family, and I'm from the least in my clan and family. I think you have me mixed up. But then the Spirit of God came upon Gideon, he sounded the trumpet, and he was so bold that he looked at his army of 32,000 people, and he said, we can't go in like this because we're going to win, and everybody's going to give credit to our troops. So he whittled his army down to hundreds. So that God could get the glory. Now that is boldness. And that's the difference that the Spirit's presence and power in our life will make. Remember the disciples on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Before they had the Spirit of Christ within their hearts. They were denying, they were betraying, they were cursing, they were scattering, they were hiding like scared kids. And then on Pentecost, when Joel's prophecy was fulfilled and his spirit was poured out on all men, women, boys, and girls, they were in the middle of Jerusalem proclaiming that Christ has risen with boldness and authority, fearlessly, courageously. That's the difference that the spirit will make in our lives as well. Saul and the entire army of Israel had a dismayed heart because, one, they lost their confidence. That was just a symptom of a deeper sickness. The deeper sickness was that he lost the Spirit's power, and he knew it. And even that is just a symptom of a deeper sickness. And so let's go to that even deeper sickness, the core of Saul's heart. Thirdly, Saul lost a vibrant relationship with God. He lost a vibrant relationship with God. And then we pick up in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Backtracking a few chapters. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed any of my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. He's interceding for Saul. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, 
Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument to himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, the Lord. Now look at this man of stature, this handsome man, this king, being very diplomatic to to the prophet. Blessed be to you, the Lord. I performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, the prophet knew what happened, and he knew what was really in Saul's heart. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? In other words, God told Samuel to wipe out everything from their enemies that they destroyed, even the livestock. And Saul kept back the best of the sheep. And this prophet saying, you said you've been obedient to the command, and what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in the background in my ears? And then they have brought them, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And that's not why he brought them. He kept the best sheep for himself. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Samuel proceeds to tell Saul that the kingdom will be ripped from him. He lost a vibrant relationship with God. In other words... He began to think that this wasn't about a relationship, it was simply about religion. Therefore, as long as he kept up outward appearances, then everything was fine with God. That everything was purely mechanical. But he forgot that it wasn't about partial obedience. It wasn't even about mostly obedience. It was about complete obedience. Because if we are 98% obedient to God, we are 100% disobedient to God. And Saul lost sight of that. He said, I'll be 98% obedient to you. And Saul was 98% obedient to God. But he forgot that what God really wanted was his whole heart. And so he kept up the pretenses of an outward relationship with God when his heart was very far from God. And I believe that this is the pattern that Saul found himself in. He had a dismayed heart because he lost confidence. That was the symptom of a deeper root. He lost the Spirit's power in his life. That was the symptom of a deeper root. He lost a vibrant relationship with God. And that was the heart of the matter. And that's why the fruit from Saul's life was cowardice and fear and timidity. And we're going to see next week jealousy and insanity and anger. It was a heart condition. He lost a vibrant relationship with Christ. And so for us today, if we evaluate the fruit of our lives and we don't like what we see because it's, it's angry, it's bitter, it's lustful, it's resentful, it's fearful, it's timid, it's cowardly. And we realize, we must realize that that is simply a symptom of a deeper root. We've lost the Spirit's power in our life. In the New Testament, we don't lose the Holy Spirit. We're simply no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is a symptom of a deeper root. Somewhere along the way, we've lost a vibrant relationship with God. And if you're honest, you would probably admit, I miss Jesus. I miss Him. I miss the way my heart used to long for him. That's just a memory now. I miss Jesus. I miss the way I used to be passionate for him. I miss the way I used to want to tell everybody what he's done in my life. I miss that. 
And if you're honest, you might furthermore admit that your relationship has been reduced to keeping up outward appearances of a religion because your heart's far from God. And that's the first tree that we're contrasting. The second tree is a breath of fresh air in this nation, in this kingdom. And this second tree had very different fruit because there was a very different root in his heart. And this was a little shepherd kid named David. And so as we back calibrated from Saul's uh, fruit to the root of his heart, let's do the same thing with David. Let's back calibrate from David's fruit to the root in his heart. The first thing we see that David had not a dismayed heart like Saul, David had a warrior heart. He had a warrior heart with these characteristics. His heart was overflowing with boldness and authority. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, and let's pick up with verse 48 through 50. This is the fruit of David's life, and we'll back calibrate to the root. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 48 through 50. We're jumping ahead in the story. David is on the, standing in the valley, toe-to-toe with Goliath, a 17-year-oldish kid with this fighting machine, this fighting machine whose armor weighs more than David weighs. And all David has is a sling, not a slingshot like you pull back the rubber band and let it go, but a sling, it's a, it's a strip of cloth or leather, and you start spinning it. And it looks like a helicopter, it's going so fast. And you release it. And David got so good with this. I mean, he was skilled at it. If there was a bottle with the lid on it, I think David could have knocked the lid off of the bottle if he wanted to. And David had this warrior heart. So here's Goliath standing toe-to-toe with David. There's no fear. There's no cowardice. There's no timidity in David's disposition whatsoever. His disposition is clean. It's bright. It's radiant. In fact, not only was David not intimidated by Goliath, Goliath was intimidated by David. Because the moment that Goliath saw David, he was infuriated. He said, you sent a kid after me with sticks and and stones? Am I a dog? And he looked upon David's appearance. It was bright, it was ruddy, it was handsome. And at that moment, Goliath despised David in his heart. Why would he despise him? Because he was intimidated by him. He'd never seen somebody stand before him with no fear, with no timidity, with boldness, with courage, who was radiant. There was something different about David. The fruit of his life was something that he had never seen. He had never seen this fruit in another person, especially another person that Goliath was facing in battle. David's fruit, he was overflowing with boldness and authority. Let's look at verse 8, chapter 17. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David, he didn't shrink back. Look at this. He ran quickly toward the battle. He's aggressive. He's fearless. He's bold. He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He didn't shrink back. There was not an ounce of fear or timidity in this battle. Verse 49. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stone stank 
into the, his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, and he took a sword, and he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head. And this giant's head is probably as big as David's whole body. And he cut off his head with the giant's own sword. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the army of Israel was emboldened. Verse 52. And the men of Israel of Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine. The Philistines. And so the battle goes. And they chased down the Philistines. They plundered their camp. Verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem. But he kept the armor as a tent, sort of a souvenir for himself. That's amazing fruit, isn't it? And the, the, the tendency is to look at this and just to sort of give ourselves a pep talk. But we fall short time and time again. It's because we can't stop short of the fruit. We have to go deeper. And we have to realize, just like Saul's loss of confidence had a deeper root, he lost the Spirit's power, and that had a deeper root. He lost a vibrant relationship with God. And in the same way, David had incredible, overflowing boldness and authority, but even that was just a symptom of a deeper root, a fruit of a deeper root. Second. As we go deeper into David's heart, we realize that he was overflowing with boldness and authority because he was burning with passion. He was burning with passion. And his passion wasn't to, was not to play it safe. It was not to play it comfortable. It was not to go down a, a, a road that many has traveled because that's the safest and most predictable route. It was not to insulate himself in a bubble and just take care of himself and his. His passion was for the glory of God and the freedom of his people. What gets you out of bed every single morning if your alarm clock goes off at 5.45 a.m.? And you want to hit snooze. What gets you out of bed is that you have a greater passion than staying in bed, and that is providing for yourself and for your family. What gets David out of the ranks with everybody else and onto the middle of the battleground? He had a greater passion than his own comfort and convenience. He had a burning passion, and that was for the glory of God and the freedom of the world. And that passion propelled him onto the battlefield. Let's read about David's passion. Chapter 17, we'll pick up in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. Verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. But the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, and not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. 
You know, we saw that David had fruit, overflowing with boldness and authority, but that fruit was the result of a deeper root, and that root was that his heart was set ablaze, on fire, with passion for the glory of God and the freedom of his people. But even the fruit of boldness and authority that stems from something deeper, a burning heart with passion, even that goes deeper. There is a deeper root to that. David's faith, David's love for God, David's conviction that God saves, that God delivers, was born, it was forged through the fire. David's faith, his courage, his conviction, his, Im- his immovable trust in God's power to deliver him was forged in the fire. Let's go deeper. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 31 through 37. When nobody from the entire ranks of Israel would step forward to go toe-to-toe with Goliath, David said, I'll do it. So we'll pick up with verse 31. They bring David before King Saul. And this is when these two contrasting trees meet. And we're in a series about David's origin, before the, his origin story before he came, became king. And next week we are really going to contrast their origin, the, the, the hearts of David and, 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 and the heart of, of Saul. And so here's where they meet. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they reported them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Let no man's heart fail because of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. You're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his sheep from his father, for his father. And when he came... And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistines shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So let's review in in back calibrating the source of David's boldness. His heart overflowed with boldness and authority on the battlefield. And we back calibrate that, and we see that David's heart was burning with passion for the glory of God and the freedom of his people. And we back calibrate that even deeper, and we see that David's heart, this faith, was forged by fire. He went through the fire. He faced a lion. He faced a bear. He didn't ask to wake up and face a lion and bear that day. In fact, if he knew that he was going to face a lion and bear that day, he probably would have rather stayed in bed. But God allowed those circumstances, God allowed those trials to come into David's life because God was equipping him. God was, re- God was preparing him for this battle on this day. And so it is with us. Our faith is forged, as we've said before, not in seminary, not that there's anything wrong with seminary. It's fine. But our faith in God, this immovable, passionate, 
bold, authoritative anointing is forged, not in a classroom, but on the battleground. And if you find yourself in a battle, if you find yourself in a fire, it is not because God has forsaken you, it is because God has anointed you, and God is preparing you. And as God demonstrates himself faithful on your behalf, it is going to fortify your conviction that God is with you, and that God is for you, and that if God is for you, who can be against you? The great W.A. Criswell, on his 80th birthday, this pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, was asked, how real is Jesus to you? And he held up his hands, and they were shaking, and with tears in his eyes and his voice trembling, he said, Jesus is more real to me than the back of my hands. That conviction flows out of walking through the battle time and time again and seeing God faithful time and time again. So that as a giant walks into your life, you're not afraid of it, but you run toward it and you tell that giant that you have a God that's so much greater than it is and prepare to die. That kind of faith is forged by the fire. Don't despise your pain. Praise God for it, because through it, God is going to be glorified in your life. Whatever it is, think about it. That aspect of your life right now that you wished were not in your life, God has not forsaken you. God has not forgotten you. God is preparing you, because he's going to show himself faithful through this battle yet again, so that you will be able to say, God is more real to me than the back of my hands. And you will not fear any giant that comes against you, but you will embrace it as an opportunity for God to be glorified in yourself yet again. God never commanded us to be bigger, stronger, or louder than the giants in our life. He simply commanded us to fix our eyes upon him and let his love and power and faithfulness just cast a shadow over our giant and watch God deliver us yet again. David's heart was overflowing with boldness and authority because his heart was burning with passion, because his faith was forged by the fire, and finally, because, and the root of David's faith, because David was faithful with little. David was faithful with little. So David's dad told David to take some supplies and cheese to his brothers who were soldiers in the army on one of the mountains with the valley facing the Philistines. So David loaded up and he ran. He probably ran a good 15 miles just in the morning with all of these supplies. And he got there, and then he saw the Philistines, and he saw, he saw the, his army, the Israelites, and he saw for the first time this giant Goliath, and he saw that nobody was responding to his threats. And this indignation began rising in the heart of David. But look at verse 20. When David left Jesse's house, his dad's house, and he left the sheep that he was watching because he was the youngest. The older got to go off to war, but he had to stay back and watch the sheep. Verse 20, David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. 
And I believe this says a lot about the character of David. He was being obedient to his dad. He was being a servant to his brothers. But not only that, he was being careful with the sheep that were entrusted to him. And he left the sheep with the keeper. Later, his brothers would accuse him of being irresponsible when he was asking questions about the giant, what's going on. And his brother said in chapter 17, uh, verse 28, why have you come down and with whom have you left a few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, he's, he's condescending him. He's, he's degrading him. He's saying, you're, only worthy. you're not worthy to be on the battlefield. You just go back to the sheep, the few sheep at that. And besides, who have you left them with? Here you go again, being irresponsible. And that wasn't the case at all about David because he was obedient to his dad but he was also faithful to his responsibilities and he left the sheep with the keeper and he took the provisions and went and we see again in verse 22 that once he was at the battle and he had these provisions and he began inquiring about Goliath verse 22 and David left the things the supplies for his brothers in the army David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers so you see here we see that David is responsible David has character David is faithful with little And I believe that this is the key to us having a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ so that our faith will be forged in the fire, so that our heart will be burning with passion, so that we will have boldness and authority. We have to back calibrate and be faithful with little. This is the core of it. And what David was most faithful in were the basic disciplines of his relationship with his God. In fact, it was in this season of David being a shepherd that he wrote the beautiful Psalm chapter 23. His brothers were out doing great things and off to war, and here is David watching the sheep, protecting them with his own life. He was faithful with the little, but most of all, he was faithful with the little disciplines that go into a daily, intimate relationship with Christ. And by the brooks, he got his harp, his um, 1000 BC version of a six-string guitar, and he just began worshiping. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not be in need of anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Oh, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, my heart. It overflows Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's just contrast these two trees. Which tree most resembles the fruit that is flowing out of your life? The tendency is to just to leave here uh, or to come down at the altar and just to try to speak to the tree to turn an apple tree into an orange tree, but that apple tree will always be an apple tree because it's the fruit, it's the, it's, it's the root that needs to change. 
And if we want a heart like David that overflows with boldness and authority, then we must have a heart that burns with passion for the glory of God and the hope of the world. And so we must have a faith that's forged by fire. And that means at the root, we must be faithful with the little things. Jesus told the story about the person that he blesses, that he honors, that he exalts to the next level. He said, if you're faithful with little, you'll be given much. But if you're not faithful with little, what little you have will be taken from you and given to him who already has much. So let's be faithful with the little things, with the little disciplines of waking up and spending time with the Lord. If your Bible is collecting dust, I can promise you that the fruit in your life is most consistent with Saul than David. If your prayer life has grown cold and Jesus feels more like a stranger to you than your closest friend who's at this moment carrying you, then I promise you the fruit in your life is more consistent with Saul than David. If you despise the irritations, the setbacks, the disappointments in your life, the severe trials and tribulations, rather than praising him for his faithfulness that is going to be revealed through it, then the fruit of your life is more consistent with Saul than David. Let's be faithful with the little things in our life. And I've challenged you to read five psalms a day. If you don't get all five in, that's fine. My, my best time in the Word is when I'm trying to get my five chapters of the psalms in, and then the Holy Spirit just sort of stops me with just a few verses. This past week, one day, I was trying to get all five psalms in, but I, I spent the whole day on Psalm 37 just meditating upon it. That was what the Holy Spirit wanted for me that day. The key is to be in the Word, and don't just read it, but pray it, believe it, stand upon it, claim it every day. I, I've, I've received uh, some messages that uh, just people grateful that I've challenged you to be in the Psalms. Continue to do it. It's this 21-day challenge. We're in the Psalms for 21 days, praying them to God every day, believing them, standing upon them. Is the root of our heart begins growing in love with Jesus, longing for Jesus. Also, This 21-day challenge is going to lead up to an invite Sunday where we're reaching out into the highways and byways and bringing in people who need Christ. So we have these cards out in the lobby. It just says, Be My Guest, Hope Works with Service Times on it. So pick up some of these cards and invite your friends and don't take no for an answer. And not this week, but next week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I want to encourage you to fast. Fast the whole week. And we're going to break the fast Friday night as we're in here. It's, it'll be Friday the 21st, two days before the 23rd, when we see many of our kid, friends come to Christ. And so we'll be in here on the 21st, Friday night. And we're just going to, at, 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 at 6.30 p.m., let's make it 6.30 p.m. And we're just going to be praying for our friends and praying that people come to Christ and grow in Christ. So fast for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Or fast all week long. And then we'll be in here praying together. And then let's break the fast afterwards together as a church family. We'll be praying for our friends who need Christ. And these are basic disciplines to grow in the anointing. Let's be in the Word every day, our five psalms. 
Let's go into the highways and byways and invite our friends to come to Christ. And let's fast and pray. And the purpose of fasting and praying is not to simply go without. It's to go without in order to go up with God. If all we do is go without, then you're just going to have a headache and you're going to be irritable. You're going to be cranky. And it's going to be a meaningless fast. But you go without in order to go up with God. With each hunger pain, with each craving for that fix, whatever it might be or with each desire to want to kind of scroll through social media, whatever your fast is, you go without and replace it with prayer. And you pray, God, draw me closer to you. God, help me to walk with you. God, let me love you. God, anoint me. God, bless my friend. God, lead my friend to Christ. If you have a friend who's, who's given into addiction, pray for their freedom. If you have a friend who's lost, pray for their salvation. If you have friends whose marriage are on, are on the rocks, pray for a miracle in their life. You go without to go up with God. And then on the 23rd, we're going to see many people come to Christ. So would you stand with me, please? My goal and you being in the Word of God every day and and for us fasting and praying, not this week but next week, either Monday through Friday or Wednesday through Friday, and then we'll break it together with the prayer meeting here on Friday night. My my, my goal is not just to get you to do stuff. Uh, My my goal is for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, for you to be Spirit-filled. It's for you to be anointed. Listen to what Jesus said about being Spirit-filled. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 38. When Jesus said rivers, he was referring to the Spirit who would be given to everyone who believes in him. Prior to these holy rivers, our hearts are unholy and unsatisfied. Then the Holy Spirit floods our hearts, cleansing our disobedience and quenching our dryness. But when we think of river... We usually imagine a peaceful setting with trickling waters, not power. However, the Mississippi River is so powerful that levees built to hold back the water often fell. The Brahmaputra River in Bangladesh produces tidal waves. It's so powerful. The power of the Yangtze River in China is used for electricity. The Amazon River in South America discharges into the Atlantic Ocean so powerfully, fresh water does not mingle with salt water for 125 miles into the Atlantic. These forceful rivers are pictures of the Holy Spirit flowing from the throne of God through the channels of our hearts and exploding into the world around us with power and authority. As a river can flow so forcefully that it etches the shape of the current into rock, so the Spirit of Christ flows into our heart with such force he engraves the image of Christ into our character. Christ's character can be summed up with one word, love. We love God and we love people. And so my goal for you being in the Word every day and our goal to fast and pray together as a church family next week, Monday through Friday or Wednesday through Friday, and pick the fast, what you're fasting from food, television, social media, cigarettes, all of the above, whatever it might be. We go without to go up with God. And every time we go without, we cry out to God. We pray, anoint me, help me, draw me, fill my heart with your Holy Spirit. So that the Spirit of Christ explodes through our heart and changes the world around us.
So as I said, the temptation is to read 1 Samuel 17, an inspiring chapter, like a pep talk, and just say, go bear fruit like that. But an apple tree can never be an orange tree. We need a different root. We need a different heart. And it back calibrates down to our relationship with Christ. How are you doing? How's your prayer life? How's your life in the Word? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ? The beautiful thing about it is that we can transfer from having the fruit of of Saul to having the fruit of David in a moment of repentance and saying, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you who are evil know how to give good good gifts to your children. If your son asks for a piece of bread, you're not going to give him a rock. In the same way, your father who is so gracious and good, how will he not much more give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in our response time together, I want to encourage you to repent, recommit to the basics, and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if I've asked you to come up and pray for people in the past, please just come up here and line up. And so if you need prayer, there will be people up here to pray for you. So let's pray. So how many of you would say, you know what, I feel like my my life has looked like Saul, but today I want it to look like the fruit of David. Raise your hand high. All right. Father, this is a... It's the heart of the matter. It's the root of the matter. We pray for renewed hearts. We pray for transformed minds. We pray for repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Let's respond. And the altars are open.